Thank you very much. I, I wish I could just walk up to each one of you and just hug you and, uh, and look you in the eye and tell you I love you with the love of the Lord as well. Um, I love the fact that we didn't even know how to love God and he first loved us. And by his grace and his pursuing of us through Jesus, he's made us one with him. And by virtue of that, we've been made one with one another. So I'm here with you today in my mind as being among family, um, being with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, they have been very gracious in their introduction of me, but I'm a normal guy. I'm, I'm very unimpressive. Uh, I just love Jesus, trying to serve Jesus. Um, I don't know about this title president. I, don't, I, I can't find it in the Bible. Uh, somebody said, because my wife knows I struggle with that title, and she said, well, what do you want to call? What do, you, what do you think they should call you? And I said, I think they should call me the chief foot washer, because that's what Jesus said we should do. We should get up from the table and wash each other's feet. So the greatest should be the servant of all. And so that would be, that would be the heart in which I come to you today. I cannot thank enough um, your pastors for their gracious hospitality, um, for their welcome embrace. When I came into this role, as I began to ask just about different parts of our nation, immediately I was told about this couple and this place and the grace of God that's here, that this is a house of his presence, that God is in this house. Amen? Don't you covet that more than anything else, that God would be in the house? Um, that that would be the word on the street, that there's bread from heaven in that house? And uh, that that would draw people. And that's what changes lives. It's not, it's not our eloquence of speech or our methods or our programs. or It's really the presence of God that transforms and changes us. And that's desired here. And it's evident in your leadership. I'm really humbled to have two new friends uh, in my life, elders now in my life. And it was an easy thing to come and to fly here because um, I wanted to meet face-to-face -face two people I've heard so much about. And when you talk with them, what's at the forefront of their conversation is Jesus and you. And that says a lot about their heart, that they love Jesus first and foremost, and that they're shepherds, they lay down their lives for their flock, and they care about your welfare and well-being and flourishing. That is what comes out of them. Uh, and so you can know a lot about somebody when you talk to them and what they begin to talk about. It's not about what serves them, but about the joy of them getting to serve others. So thank you for your gracious welcome and your hospitality, and I honor you today um, as elders in the kingdom of God and in the house of God, and thank you for the privilege of being able to share today. You have a beautiful facility. You have a beautiful location. Um, my only regret this morning is I'm sitting there wishing my wife could be with me. I wish she could be sharing in this worship time with me. Somehow I want to take a little bit of this back home to her, but, um, but we might stalk you online once in a while now and uh, worship with you online. So uh, I, uh, I have to agree. Yeah, you, you have something special here in the hearts and the talents of the people who led us in worship this morning. But, but, um, but it was evident they weren't 
they weren't platforming themselves. That they were here to worship Jesus with us and invite us to worship Jesus with them. And so um, thank you. I know this is still kind of crazy time, isn't it? COVID and all that it means. And we're learning how to still navigate that and love one another and serve our communities well in the process. And if you're online, I, I want to say hi to you and welcome you and thank you for being with us today. Um, pastor told me I only had two and a half hours to preach. So I, I probably ought to get after it. Um, but uh, no, I, I wouldn't do that. All the kids all of a sudden just started getting really nervous. So I don't, don't want to do that to them. But, but I want to make it easy for you this morning when you turn in your Bible or if you turn on your Bible, however you access your Bible, um, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Revelation. So other than Genesis, there's probably not an easier book in the Bible to find. So if you're becoming familiar with your Bible and it's new to you, just go to the very back and hook a left and you're going to be right there. But I want to get to the essence really at the heart of what is the sustainable motivation for us as followers of Jesus. Um, How many of you, the older you get, you want to become more and more like Jesus? You want the fruits of the Spirit, the character of Jesus, the aroma, the fragrance of Jesus to be seen in you? We don't want to be... We don't want to get older and get grumpy and cynical and fussy and angry and fearful. The the longer we walk with Jesus, we'll become more and more like him. We're becoming transformed by Jesus as we follow Jesus and as we serve Jesus. But but to go the distance, to, to go decades and decades of following Jesus, there's something that is essential. And it's really what Jesus prioritizes. And it's very freeing when we get to that point of focus. And it really goes back to our beginnings in Jesus. How many of you can remember? Some of you have been raised in church. I was a pastor's kid. Um, I think I was born on a Friday and I was in church on Sunday. Uh, I, I, never, I didn't know not being in church. Um, My mom, my grandma, my great-grandma all took me out of church and spanked me in the foyer at one time or another. So I I, I grew up being raised in in the church in every way. And yet there's a distinct moment when, as a 13-year-old, I made a willful decision in response to a revelation of who Jesus was to surrender my life to Jesus. And that was a turning point for me. I went from being a good church kid with a big conscience that wouldn't quit, that always tried to just do right and wrong, to being in love with Jesus. How many of you remember that moment you met Jesus face to face? You, you, you were captured by his grace, by his love, by his truth, by his goodness, and it altered the direction of your life. It, and the beauty of it is we didn't even, the Bible says we didn't even know to seek him. We didn't even know to look for him. It, the Bible says there's no one that seeks God, none. There's, it's like it's not the inclination of our heart. God has to seek man. I raised three boys. I don't know what girls are like. I wished it was just all wheels and swords and, you know, uh, cars and trucks and balls in our house. So, but once I was on a trip, my wife and I took on our boys were three, uh, real little. They were five years old, three years old 
and not even one years old. And when you travel with kids that age, you have a lot of stuff you have to carry, don't you? And so we were on an airplane, and we flew into Seattle, Washington, and we had to go down this escalator to where there was the underground train that would take us back to the main terminal so we could get our baggage and go. And so I'm carrying car seats and fishy crackers and all the stuff you, you get when you've got kids, and we're going down the escalator, and I could see it's really full. There's, there's a lot of people. And as we got to the bottom of the escalator, I turned to my wife and said, we're going to have to wait for the next train because it was just packed with people. And just as I said that, my three-year-old son, Sam, who ended up later going to college on a track scholarship, so he's always been a runner, he, three years old, went running and jumped into the train and then turned and looked at us just as the doors closed and the train went. And I looked at my wife and I said, I am so glad we've got two other kids because uh, I'm going to miss that little guy. It's like, teach him to run off. Uh, I'll tell you, you know what happened? I shifted in a gear I didn't even know I had. All of a sudden, everything came into focus for me. There was only one thing that mattered to this father. His son was lost. His son was not safe in our embrace. And the only thing that mattered from that point on was we're going to find our son. Thankfully, there was a couple we had talked with on the plane who was on the train, and they saw what happened, and they stayed with him and got off at the next stop. And so when that two minutes waiting for the next train was the longest two minutes of our life. And then we got on, and we went to the next stop, and we saw them there, and, and everybody just kind of broke out in tears. I didn't know whether to hug him or spank him. I didn't know what to do. Uh, but all I knew is my son was back with us. It didn't matter to me whether he was rebellious, whether he disobeyed. It didn't matter to me if he was impulsive or reckless. It, it was just, he was my son. The Bible says, we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us have lost our way. And God didn't sit up in heaven and go, thou teach them. I'll just start over with some new kids. He said, get me a body. I'm going after them. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And he embodied his very heart of love for us in his son, Jesus. And Jesus came and sought us and found us. And the motivation for that was his love. And that's why the Apostle Paul says at the very end of his life, when he was fruitful and had accomplished much, and he was facing an imminent death for his faith in Jesus, his refusal to acknowledge, his refusal to um, back away from his claim that Jesus was Lord and Jesus was alive, it was going to cost him his life. And this is what he said at the end of his life, his very last kind of words that he would write to a group of people. He said, I still want to know him more. And I want to lay hold of the one who laid hold of me. He grabbed hold of my life, and I want to spend my whole life grabbing hold of him. He loved me, and I want to love him. He withheld nothing. And my response is, I want to love you in return in that way. I want to suggest to you today that that essence of loving and being loved by Jesus and loving Jesus 
is the key to a sustainable, fruitful, transformational, impactful life for God. If we lose that, we lose everything. And so I want you to look at this section of scripture in Revelation chapter 2, and I want to give a little context for it if you would let me... um, just kind of stick with it a little bit here as we lay the foundation and then make some practical application and then we'll go and we'll eat and do whatever we're going to do next. But there's a group of people in a very real city at a very real time in history that received these letters. We call them the seven churches. And they're in a place called Asia Minor, which is today the modern nation of Turkey. And there was a city there that was in the Roman Empire, probably the third most prestigious city at the time, and it was called Ephesus. I've been to the ruins of Ephesus. It's the largest archaeological site in the world. It's a phenomenal place to go. But it's a real place. Real people got the letter that we're reading today. It transcends time. It still speaks to us today. But there were people that were going to sit in living rooms and outdoors under trees, and they're going to hear these words from Jesus being read to them. And so this prominent city of Ephesus, this significant cosmopolitan city with all of these just... uh, affluence and paganism and all the crossroads of culture, there was a flourishing church there. And these are the words that we began reading in in, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, I'm just going to stop and just kind of make some comments here if I can. We know that lampstands in this context are the churches. And we know that because in Revelation chapter 1, it literally says, and the seven lampstands are the churches. So it's about one of the only things in Revelation we know exactly for sure what it means. I wish, I wish it would have had other places where they would go, and that leopard with the seven horns, that means this. But, but we do know that the seven lampstands represents the church. And then in verse 2, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. He's saying the word that's perseverance here is the word for patience under circumstances. You're going through external pressures, and you don't quit. This is about a 40-year-old church now. Um, They are beyond the founders. They've had successive leadership. They've been flourishing for four decades. And Jesus commends them, and he says some things like, You've got good fruit. You work hard. You persevere. You don't quit. How many of you would like to have Jesus say that to you? Those, are good, those aren't bad things to hear from Jesus. And then he says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. He's not saying, hey, you hate sinners. He's saying, you love holiness. You love the purity of the presence of God in your midst, and you want people to grow up into the fullness of who Jesus is, and you don't tolerate sin to just rampantly and willfully exist. It was a very immoral city in which they lived. There was a temple there to the goddess of Diana that used sexual perversion in their worship of that goddess, and it permeated the city. And Jesus is saying, you're like this beacon of righteousness in the midst of all of that. You love righteousness and truth and holiness, not in self-righteous judgment, 
but as an alternative to the example that the world had been given around them. He says, you've tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul was leaving, he said to the Ephesian elders, wolves are going to come in and they're going to destroy the flock. So guard and, and guard against false teachers. And Jesus is saying, you're doing that. He says, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and you've not grown weary. He's saying, you're not lazy Christians. You've got a lot going on. You care about each other. You serve each other. You serve the city. Um, you stayed the course. If Ephesus was a crazy place. Someday, don't you hope we get to heaven and there'd be like a video library. You can just go download certain parts of the Bible and go, I'd like to see that. Paul said, we fought wild beasts in Ephesus. Like, what does that mean? But it was a crazy place. It was, it was a lot of opposition. There was spiritual warfare and external pressures. So, so here's the context. This letter circulating, and now it's being read publicly, and it's Jesus talking directly to you, and he's saying, you love holiness. You persevere under difficult circumstances. You don't quit. You lay down your lives and you serve one another. You care about the truth and guard against false teaching. And, and it's like, man, we're doing okay. We're hanging in there. And then in verse 4, you hear these words. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. So consider how far you've fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. Because if you do not repent, I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, if you're hearing that, you're like, we're working hard. We love truth. We're hanging in there. We're not quitting. We love And all of a sudden, it's like, what? What? Come again? Like, we're going to lose our lampstand? That can't be good. Like, if you're listening, you're going, uh-oh, what's that all about? We're, like, you're going to take away the lamps. I mean, we're going to lose our place in the city? We're going to lose our place in the culture? They didn't have electricity back then. A lampstand would have been this place where light was elevated and light had a double purpose. Light was inwardly illuminating. It, it revealed what was happening around you, but it also was a demonstration to penetrate the darkness around it. And what Jesus is saying is, if you lose this one thing, you're going to lose this inward revelation of who Jesus is, and you're going to lose your ability to penetrate the darkness in the city around you. This is a serious thing then. So it becomes front and center um, uh, to what our ministry and our lives are all about and what's a priority for us because Jesus isn't saying, and I'll stop loving you. He's not saying, and I'll stop caring about you. He's saying, you're going to lose your light. You're going to lose your understanding of Jesus and your broadcasting of Jesus, the truth of him to the world around us. What he's saying is, if you get this thing wrong, you'll get everything else wrong. But if you get this thing right, it's like everything else has a chance. It's like buttoning the top button of the shirt. If I don't get this one right, all the rest are off. And it's kind of like Jesus is saying, this is the most important because if you get this right, everything flows from this. Everything comes out of this. And he says these words, I hold this against you. You've lost your first love. Those words, they hit me hard. 
Now, there's a reason for that, but there's a few things God cannot do. Did you know that? God cannot lie. God cannot change. He's not going to change on you. He's not going to go bad on you a million years from now. God cannot tempt you with evil. He will not tempt you with evil. But do you know that the scripture really helps us to understand God cannot make you love him? He can't. He can love you, but he cannot command and demand the, recipro- the reciprocity, the, reciprocal- or the, uh, the, the return of that love. So now I'm getting kind of getting now to the, the practical, but stay with me here for a second. Okay, so good deeds, perseverance, hard work, um, sound teaching, all those things aren't really good enough to help maintain in and of themselves a freshness of first love with Jesus. So what does? So this is, let me tell you what Americans do a lot. They shift into problem-solving mode. Well, let's just fix it. So let's come up with some solutions. This is kind of what we do. We just like, well, there's a problem. Let's, that's our first impulse, even as believers sometimes. Let's just try to fix, fix the problem. And so how would you go about fixing it? What if you said, we just need better leadership? So think about this church for a moment. Think about this pastor. Would, what would it be like to pastor a church that was started by the Apostle Paul? And then Priscilla and Aquila, this dynamic couple, comes and follows you and establishes and teaches. And then Timothy is sent there by the Apostle Paul to shepherd and to teach. And then when Timothy leaves, the Apostle John, who walked with Jesus, comes. You remember John, the one whom Jesus loves? They've had Paul, Priscilla and Aquila, Timothy, and John the Apostle. Do you think they could have gotten better leadership than that? So if you're waiting around saying, if pastor would just do better, if we just had better leadership, then I would serve love more. No, it's, it's, it's really, if you're looking at what their foundation is, it's phenomenal leadership. And, and so maybe this, what if we just had more miracles? What if we just had more signs and wonders in a culture of the miraculous? Do you know in Acts chapter 19, when Paul was at the city of Ephesus, it was, there were so many miracles taking place that he would take a handkerchief, pray over it, and they would take that handkerchief and they would put it on people and they'd be healed. Can you imagine that? Hey, Paul, would you come pray for your mom? I'm busy. Well, please come pray. Here, just take this handkerchief. That's good for like two healings and a deliverance. Here, go, go, go. I mean, they had phenomenal signs and wonders and a culture of the miraculous. So, okay, so if it's not just great leadership or miracles, what if we just really had cultural impact? The gospel so permeated the city of Ephesus that the industry that fueled sin, that sin was fueled by, began to erode. The worship of Diana was so undercut by so many people coming to salvation the idol makers who made the idols of worship for her lost business and the economy of sin was tanking. It would be like if Las Vegas had to shut down its gambling industry because so many people were getting saved. And they rioted in the amphitheater. They were so upset 
with the Christians because they were losing the business that sin profited from. You're not going to make a bigger impact in society than that. And so what about making disciples? What if we just really just made more disciples? Well, in Acts chapter 19, it said Paul spent two years training, making disciples, and from Ephesus, the word of God spread all over Asia Minor in two years. Well, what if we just had really sound doctrine and great teaching? The book of Ephesus? The book of Ephesians? How many would agree that's a pretty good book of doctrine? So you got that. What is the point I'm about to make? Paul says, I didn't hesitate to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God in Ephesus. Super leadership, miracle signs and wonders, sound doctrine and phenomenal teaching, shaking the city in impact and changing the society around them, people being sent all over the area to start churches. And that in and of itself wasn't enough to sustain first love. So what is the answer? Because how many would want those things? How many want to see the miraculous? The power of God, I do. How many hunger to see disciples made and the city around us changed because the salt and the light is permeating and influencing and healthy leaders and we want all of that but none of that can replace the most important thing and this is kind of the heart of what I want to get at if you look again in verse 4 yet I hold this against you you have forsaken the love you had at first now this isn't a correction word I'm not coming to you to correct you because I think you've lost your first love. I'm coming to encourage you. I'm coming to strengthen you, um, to celebrate with you, and to contend with you as I am every day of my life for this central thing. He says, I hold this against you, forsaken the love you had at first. So consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and I'll remove your lampstand from its place. When he said, you've lost the love you had at first, in essence, what he's saying is, you've left it behind. Or you could even say it like this, you've exchanged it for something else. That this used to be the priority, and now this has become the priority. And they removed Jesus from his place of priority, and now Jesus is saying, you're going to lose that place if you don't return back to them and so to it. So he calls them back to their first love, and it's, it's, it's never that love just kind of went away. It's, it's you've left it. So let me, let me talk a little practical. Can I talk a little husband-wife here for a moment? Not everybody in the room is married. I understand that. If their percentages hold true, most everyone in this room who's not married will be married one day. So just as a percentage, that'll be, that's not the ultimate. I'm just acknowledging not all of us are married. But let's use the example for marriage. Because when I wasn't married, I learned and watched married couples knowing one day I'd probably be married. And, but don't you want to emulate couples that have been married a long time who still love one another and like each other? 
I've been married 32 years. I don't just love my wife. I like my wife. I like to be with her. Well, yeah, I mean, I didn't say that for applause, but, but, but here's what I know. We pastored a, a large church. We had 100 people on our staff. We had um, lots of responsibilities in the community. Um, we were raising three boys. And this is what we learned at some stage of our married life early on that all the blessings that came out of our union together as man and wife began to become the focus of our life at the expense of the intimacy that produced it to begin with. It's like Jesus is saying, you've got all this good fruit, all this that has flown out of your union with Jesus and now the focus has become on the fruit. And it's coming at the expense of the union and the intimacy that produced it in the first place. You're so focused on what this has produced that you've lost the connection and the priority of this. And Jesus says, if you maintain this, all of this will continue. If you neglect this, all of this is going to fade. He calls us back to the place where fruitfulness begins because we can get busy, the beast of growth, more up and to the right, everything's increasing. And oftentimes then it becomes, and I hear this all the time from pastors when I say, tell me about your prayer life. And they so often they'll just kind of put their heads down and they'll start talking about how busy they are. So busy that I don't have time for Jesus. Jesus is always with me. But the intimacy, the union, the prioritization of that relationship is reflected in certain things. And Jesus is saying, I can't be second place. I want you back. I want to go back to that place because we serve a God who says these words to us in Deuteronomy 31. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And Jesus is saying, you've forsaken me. And what is he saying? I'll never forsake you. Do you know that you can leave somebody in terms of proximity? Today, we're going to leave each other's presence. But do you know that you can be together in each other's presence and have forsaken the relationship? You can live together as a husband and wife in a home and not leave each other physically, but yet have forsaken each other relationally, emotionally. You stopped moving towards one another. God says in Deuteronomy 31, I will never do that to you. I'll never turn away from you. I'll never turn my back on you. I'll never withdraw and I'll never withhold from you. I've had the privilege over the last 35 years of ministry of officiating over 322 weddings. And I count them because every Wednesday I have these books with the certificates and pictures of the couples I've done weddings for and I pray for them every Wednesday morning. So that's kind of how I know. And it's a joy, but this is a few things I've learned over the years about weddings. 
And I've had the privilege of officiating a couple Nigerian weddings that are some of my all-time favorite. Uh, there's, there's, there's a party that happens in those, those, those weddings that was just too fun. Um, but almost all weddings are the same. You know, I tell the groom up front, you're not the star of the show, she is. Nobody's going to stand up for you when you walk in the room. Uh, you're like a prop, you know. Um, she's going to get a beautiful room to get ready in, and you're going to be like in the alley by the garbage dumpster back there, you know. And, you know, we come out, and sure enough, here's how it always happens. The music starts, and here comes, no, the appetizer brides. They come first. You know, the, all the, the attendants, right? They come all the, here's all the pre-brides coming in. They take their place. And then usually the door closes, or if it's outdoors, kind of everything's kind of stops activity out there. Usually the music changes, and all of a sudden the door opens, and all eyes look at the bride. Everybody stands. Everybody starts crying. He's crying. He's never seen her look like that before. Probably will never again. Um, never, he's never seen her look like that. And vice versa. Uh, she's stunning. A bride adorned on her wedding day in every culture is a phenomenal thing. And I have never seen, in 320-something weddings, I have never seen the groom or anybody in that audience when the bride comes forth. I've never seen anybody go. She's ugly. Never. It's always, she's beautiful. Beautiful. This is... Let me kind of put it this way. This is what the Apostle Paul says about all that. He says, I don't speak just of marriage. I speak of a mystery of Jesus in the church. When you see all that going on, there's something greater going on. That is imaging forth a divine reality. That's pointing to something greater. This is a reflection of that. And what that is, it's a little backwards of how we're used to it. One day, the groom's going to make the entrance. The door's going to open up, and there's going to be the groom. And we're going to be stunned at the groom. We're going to be a beautiful bride. I know that's hard for guys to think about that concept, but we're the one awaiting this culmination of this union that we have been made together, one in the spirit, that one day we'll see face to face. We long for that day. We yearn for that day. We live in anticipation and expectation for that day. We even say, even so, Jesus, come quickly. We long for that. We know that that opportunity is going to come, but you know what that, do you know what that groom is saying to us? In light of that day, you know what he's saying to you right now? is I will beautify you with my love, with my word that will wash you, that will bring forth radiance, that will make you without spot or wrinkle, that there's something beautiful that's going to come forth in our life because he loves us. Let me say to some single men here this morning, if you're a single guy, 
Someday you'll probably be married. And one day your wife will say to you, do you love me? And be very careful in that moment. You're going to most likely say, absolutely. Yes, I love you. And she might then say, why? Why do you love me? Be really careful. Because if you say, you're so beautiful, you cook so good, you're so, you start attributing your love to her on the basis of certain things that can change. There's insecurity that will come into that relationship. Because the securing of your love for me is based on those things. What if those things can't be true anymore? So here's the right answer. I'll tell you the right answer. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, when God said to Moses, in Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8, he says, you're a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now listen to this. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. What is he saying? Is like there was nothing in the natural that said, I should love you. And this is what he said. It's because I loved you, says the Lord, that I love you. God chose to love you. I will love you. You cannot make me not love you. God's volitional will, his choice, I love you, and, and, and he will love you, but he wants to love you. It's in his heart to love you. It's not that he has, but that he does. It's not that he's chosen to, he desires to love you. And it's not conditional on our performance. It's not because I'm this, 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 or this that God loves me. God chose to love me. And as I walk in and receive that love, it changes me. And the only response back is, I love you. I love you more than the fruitfulness of ministry. I love you more from all the good things that you've put in my life and blessed me with. I love you, God, than all of the opportunities that you bring my way. I love you more than all of that. I put all that on the altar to love you and to know you. So how do you get it back? And I'm going to finish with this. He gives three simple things. He says, remember, repent, and do the things you did at first. Remember, repent. What does he say? First, remember the height from which you've fallen. Remember what it was like. Remember when you were willing to sacrifice anything. Remember what it was like when you were willing to give everything. You, you wouldn't quit. You worked hard at it. It was worth your effort. You gave your all. When I was dating my wife, nobody had to tell me, you should spend time with her. You, you, should, you should be affectionate with her. You should be thoughtful towards her. You should consider her. You should prioritize her. When you're in first love, doesn't that just get you out of bed in the morning? It's like it comes natural. 
And it's kind of like Jesus said, I want you to remember that because you cannot legislate relationship. God gave the law to Israel. He had pages and pages and pages of the law, and that law wasn't able to unite their hearts in love towards God. It required the passionate pursuit of a God saying, give me a body, I'm going to go after them. And I'm going to demonstrate that there's no greater love than this, that I'd lay down my life for you. That passionate love is the hallmark of God. It's the hallmark of who he is. That's why every morning I've trained myself for 30 years, and I've only told you the things I'm really kind of doing really well. I have a whole lot of things I'm working on and I'm not doing well on, so don't think I'm up here tooting my own shofar, because I'm not. Uh, but I've trained myself in something because of this. Because I'm not the most talented, I'm not the most gifted, I'm not the most skilled. But the only thing I bring to this every day is, Jesus, I love you. That's foundational. But I've trained myself every morning when my alarm goes off. And I'm not a morning person. If you're a morning person, I salute you. I wished I was. I'm not. I'm a night owl who could sleep all morning. So I get up out of discipline early in the morning. It's work. But the minute the alarm goes off, I don't grab my phone before I do anything. I say, Jesus. Jesus. I just say his name. I want my heart to turn to Jesus. I want to I wanna be prioritizing my day in Jesus, Jesus. And then I say my wife's name, Sandy. I choose you today, Jesus. I choose you, Sandy, as my bride again today. I'm choosing. As for me and my house, we're going to serve Jesus. I'm making a decision this day. It's the, it's the directing of my heart from the very first opening of my eyes in the morning, the very first breath of the morning, is to orient my heart. Not with all the problems I got to face that day, all the challenges in front of me, all the burdens I'm going to experience. It's just Jesus. Everything else gets stripped away. That remains. It's where you put your focus that shapes your attitude, your passions, your heart. We just had the Olympics. Did you guys watch any of the Olympics? Do you know they did a study on medalist people who win medals in the Olympics? They, Northwestern University did this big study and research on, do you know who the most unhappy of the medalists are? Silver medalists. And you want to know why? Because all they can focus on is what they didn't get for the most part. It's like, I was like that close. Like, I was right there. I almost got gold. They're a little discontent. You know who the happiest were? The bronze. Not the gold, the bronze. You know why? Because the bronze were like, I almost got nothing. You know, I'm just, I'm just happy to be here. You know, it's kind of like, woo-woo. Uh, and they say what you focus on determines your attitude. Fix your eyes on Jesus the author and finisher of your faith, and run the race set before you with perseverance. It's like, as I fix on Jesus, the focus that shapes the attitude and the priority and the passions of my heart. So remember, remember what that was like? Remember when you were first in love? Actively think about what, what was that like? What was that all about? And then the second thing is repent. That's not just some mean bony-fingered prophet saying, you'd better. Repent is, you were face-to-face -face with Jesus. You turned around, you started going this way. 
Jesus didn't go anywhere. You're only as close to Jesus as you want to be because he hasn't gone anywhere. He's all in. He, he put it all out there. There's no question whether he loves you or not. He wants to spend time with you. He wants you to know him. He wants to be in your life. He wants to be your source. He wants to be your provider. He wants. And so when I turn my face and other things supplant him, he's saying, turn around, repent. You know, when God made Adam in the garden, it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul, spiritually made alive. The first human that we have record of who came alive spiritually opened his eyes, and the first thing the first human saw was the face of God. It's God saying, look to me and you'll live. And when they turned their face from God and they started looking at the fruit of the tree and they started looking outside of God for meaning and significance and identity and they lost, they fell. And God had to go looking for them and say, come out of hiding, look to me again. Repentance, turn around. God's not gone anywhere. We have. Turn around. Come back. Sin causes us to hide ourselves. Sin wounds relationships. And so when we repent, we realize we've grieved the Holy Spirit that wants to bring us into intimacy with Jesus. And so we repent, we acknowledge that, and turn from it and turn back to Jesus. And then he said, and resume. Do what you did at first. Do what you did at first. Do you know in Matthew 6, it says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. That word treasure is a word that means receptacle. It's a place you make deposits in. So wherever you're making deposits, it turns your heart there. Somebody once says, the grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. The grass is greener where you water it. Where are you putting the deposit? Where are you investing? Wherever you give of yourself and your time and your talent and your treasure, your heart goes there. And this is what he said, I want you to in, make deposits in this relationship because your heart will follow that. Your heart will follow. God doesn't want your stuff. He wants your heart. And when we offer of our lives and worship to the Lord, the whole of our lives, it directs our heart there. The analogy of the wedding, when you have a man and a woman standing there face to face, and oftentimes they turn their face from one another, they got to turn back to one another. What did, what did they do at the essence of a wedding ceremony? They speak vows to one another. And they're making <clears throat> promises to each other. And the promises are not on the basis of that moment. <clears throat> it's easy to love each other in that moment. But they're making promises about future behavior. They're saying, I will be this to you as long as we both shall live. That, that you can count on me. This will we'll go the distance that, that as long as we both shall live. That there's something about God's word to us that are his promises to us saying, as long as you live. In me, all of these promises are yes and amen. And so what do we do? We do the things we did at first. We commit to the things because 
if we are honest, when we lose relationship and we lose first love, either in marriage or close friendships or partnerships or with God, it didn't happen in just one moment, did it? Usually it was an accumulation of a lot of little things. I met with a couple once that was getting a divorce, and I couldn't figure out why they were getting a divorce. There was no abuse or adultery or abandonment. or I was just trying to get to the essence of it. And she said these words. She says, our marriage died the death of a thousand paper cuts. It wasn't like any one thing. It was all those little neglects added up to that pain. And all I could think about was, what if there would have been a thousand acts of kindness, a thousand moments of prayer, a thousand words of affirmation and love? What if there would have been a thousand acts of generosity? And those add up, don't they? And this is what Jesus is saying. The things that make relationships flourish, do that. Resume that. So why do I read my Bible every day? Because I always feel like it? No. Some days I do, some days I don't. When I met my wife, we met at a summer camp years ago before they had internet. So sorry if you don't know what stamps and envelopes are, but we wrote letters for a year. Um, Some of the younger ones among us might not go, letters, stamps. Like you actually had to write stuff and then wait a long time for them to get it and respond. And I lived in a state called Wyoming, and my wife lived in Oregon, and we met at this camp in Oregon. And then I moved to Jamaica for a year, and I never saw her again for a year. Saw her for one week, moved away to Jamaica. We wrote letters for a year. But once every other week, I would get a letter from her through that year. And I had this place that I would go to on a beach, and I would sit there when I was undistracted, and I would open her letters, and I would start reading them, Dear Randy. And I'd like, dear Randy. I wonder, I wonder what she means by dear Randy. Does she mean my, like, my dear Randy? Like, what does she mean? And I would just perseverate on the words, and I would meditate on the words. Do you know why? Because I loved the author. You know why I come to the Bible every day? Not just so that I can do a religious duty. It's because I love the author. And I hear the words and the heart of my Savior being spoken to me in those moments. Do you know the beauty of marriage? You talk to people that have been married a long time, and they'll say, we're still learning each other in each season of life. There's still more to discover of each other. You're never going to exhaust Jesus. You could walk with him for decades, and his mercies are new every morning. There's new to discover of who Jesus is. And that's why Jesus said, do those things you did at first. Remember when gathering and worshiping mattered, and you prioritized that? Because there was something of me revealed in those moments. Remember you couldn't get enough of my word? Remember when spending time in my presence was a pursuit? Remember when there was joyful offering of your life and ministry and availability, and that flowed out of love, not obligation. Jesus said, and do those things again. I want you back. Jesus doesn't want anything from you. He wants something for you. And that can only flow out of relationship with him. You'll never get bored with Jesus. 
Because you'll never, we'll have all eternity plumbing the depths of who he is. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and this will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of God and gaze upon his beauty all the days of my life. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you, for you are my strength, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. The first thing, first love. I want to pray with you if I can. Father, I know that these words were written in real time to a real people. But by your spirit, these words are living and life to us today. That this isn't a word of rebuke or condemnation or correction. God, it's a, a word of invitation. I just sensed in your heart just something of your love for us to be revealed through these words we read this morning that that would matter more to you than anything, even before what we do for you, even before all the things we could even offer to you, before we could do anything and be of a blessing to you, you first called us to yourself. And I just want to offer this today. If you're here, maybe you're watching online, and you've just never opened your heart and said yes to Jesus, a place of surrender, a beginning of a union with your maker and creator who knows you really well, <laughs> knows you better than you know yourself. He knew you before you were even born. He knew what your life was to become. He knew who you were created to be and he knows you by name. And he invites you today through Jesus to start a new life with him. And I just want to say, if you've never done that, it's a matter of just believing in your heart that Jesus died and rose again and then just saying what you believe in your heart with your words, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. I surrender. Be the Lord. My life is yours. Let the Holy Spirit take what Jesus did in his death and resurrection and do a miracle of new birth in your heart. Bring you into new life. He brings you into his life and his life comes into you and old things pass away and all things become new. You become a new creation in Jesus. And you walk out this new life each day in relationship to the one who loved you and gave himself to you. In the way that you begin, you continue in by saying yes to Jesus. Father, I pray you're provision and grace over this house, over all these men and women and children. God, I thank you for this place. I thank you for the lighthouse that it is. It's, an, it's, it's a bright light on a lampstand shining, revealing Jesus inwardly and revealing the truth of who Jesus is outwardly, pushing against the darkness of this world. God, may your light continue to shine from this place, from each heart from each life that together make this house. God, a city set on a hill, a place of light and hope and truth. Jesus, be revealed. Jesus, may you continue to draw everyone here close to you. May knowing you, loving you, God, be the passion and the pursuit of our life from which fruitfulness, 
and transformation and impacting culture and going to the world will take will flow out of in Jesus name amen amen I want to do something if you'll allow me this opportunity I'm gonna ask pastors to come up here um, they've blessed me in so many ways already and I'm thankful for the friendship that we have and will have to build on from this weekend going. But your pastor listens and follows Jesus as he would lead them in each season in the life of this church. And we have had a, a formal and a unique partnership in Foursquare and our relationship and friendship and togetherness won't change. Um, we're family together. But as God leads you into your future, we want you to be blessed and we want to bless you in that. And so I just want to lay hands on them and pray for them by virtue of my role, but also just by virtue of this place of um, friendship and partnership that we've been offered. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, I know that it's been a long road of fruitful and faithful ministry over these last several decades that has brought these leaders and this congregation to this place and moment in time. God, you have divinely orchestrated the circumstances and events. You've directed these footsteps. You've blessed and prospered the work of these hands. God, you've honored lives who've honored you. And God, we're not saying this is the end. We're just saying that this is a juncture, God, of moving into a new season that you've appointed. And God, we believe that the glory of the latter house should be greater than the former in Jesus' name. We believe, God, that there are multitudes yet who are going to hear the gospel. We believe there are multitudes of disciples to be made. We know that there is there are congregations to be multiplied and uh, nations to be touched through this place. God, you have set yourself to do a work here. And God, I ask for open heavens over this place. God, I ask that you would pour out your spirit upon these vessels. God, I lay hands on this couple that could easily just uh, uh, be seen as those who could lead and be an elder in any capacity there is. And it's a humbling thing to lay hands on servants like this. But I impart, God, your grace in this season for them. And we bless them. We bless the fruitful friendship and partnership and ministry. And we contend for it and we bless the season ahead. God, that this would be a season of grace. God, this would be a season of joy, that there would almost be an effortlessness to it. God, there will be contending and striving in the spirit, but God, may, there, may it just be like there's a wide open place being made in front of them, God. God, may they hear your voice like never before. May your voice be what their ears hear, God. May they know your voice above all others, God, and follow no other. And so, Jesus, thank you for these shepherds of yours. May they be anointed with a fresh anointing in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. 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 Amen.